0: Welcome to episode 10 of The Tar Sands Diplomat, a Canadian satirical diplomatic thriller read by the author Keith Halliday. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leak the news to a few friends. If you have any comments, please visit keithhalliday.com or email khalliday at tar sandsdiplomat.com. And now, from the podcast cave, here's Keith with the next episode. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 11, The Not-So-Bright Lights at My Interrogation. The next morning, the mission was still in a tizzy about the bomb threat. The usual post-bomb threat debate was raging loudly in the corridor outside my office. Someone said that most bomb threats are fake and a huge waste of time. Someone else replied that most bombs explode without the bombers warning anyone first, so if you're going to get killed by a bomb there probably wouldn't have been a warning anyway. At this point someone sensible pointed out that it would be pretty silly to sit in your office and get blown up if it did turn out to be one of those rare occasions when there were both a threat and an actual bomb. In the background, Lucille was on the phone debating the related question of whether time spent in a bar waiting for the all-clear was work. Her position was that it was work, as long as the bar was close enough to the mission that one could plausibly claim to be ready to return to one's office. But not so close, of course, that the bar would be blown up if there actually was a bomb. The person on the other end of Lucille's phone seemed to be arguing that if it was work, then you shouldn't do it in a bar. That would be like drinking at work. In response, Lucille began listing colleagues who kept liquor in a desk drawer. She went on to say that the threatening voice had sounded like Donald Duck with a German accent. The caller had used a voice changer, apparently. I pondered this fact. Did it mean we were dealing with a sophisticated villain, or teenagers who'd purchased a cheap voice changer at an electronics shop? I stood up and closed my door. Can-do Canada wasn't going to plan itself. Indeed, without some heroic bureaucratic efforts, it showed signs of turning into something like those old Soviet rocket launches that explode on the launch pad, immolating the hapless officials supposedly in charge of it. Anyway, I needed to make progress before my sessions with Security Division and the Belgian police later in the day. I unscrewed my fountain pen for a refill and pondered the trade mission. What was the point in fine-tuning briefing notes, I wondered, if Can Do Canada really was just a smokescreen for a tar sands oil deal with Europe? I mauled the presence of Bedo and Ravinsky in Brussels. They certainly weren't here to help out on asbestos or Frankenstein canola. My office door banged open suddenly, startling me, and sending a fine spray of bleu nuit across the latest Signet C5 secure message room headquarters. Lucille cleared her throat. Lieutenant Forget from the Gendarmerie, she said in introduction. In one of the many signs of secretarial insolence she manifests, she spoke in English and pronounced his name like the English word Forget. Lucille smiled innocently. Diplomatic security unit, she continued. I stood up, as if to shake hands, but really to get a good view of my interrogator. I had hopes that Belgian gendarmes who covered the embassies might wear some kind of uniform with a sword and a feather in the hat. His uniform instead looked like something a second-tier Parisian designer would create for a minor fascist regime seeking to update its image. Lieutenant Forquet, with a Q, he said pointedly, turning to look at Lucille. But she was already gone. You have to be faster than that to catch Lucille, I thought. French is her mother tongue, you know, I told him, switching to French myself. I beckoned the lieutenant to sit down, pushed my ink-splattered papers into a drawer, and gave him my fullest attention. He sat, straightened his jacket, and pulled a small pile of note cards out of his briefcase. The purpose of this interview is to ask you some questions about the murder of... He checked the card again. Julian Utherwaite, third secretary. He gave a sigh of deep... Belgian ennui. I knew the look. He was clearly disappointed at being assigned the murder of a third secretary, while the guys who drank and played cards with the chief got to do the kinky sex scandals at the European Parliament. It was too bad. I've been looking forward to my session with the police. I love to be interrogated. I enjoy the different styles, the thrust and parry, the old lamp shining in your eyes. Interrogations can even be useful. I've often learned more at interrogations than my questioners. For example... On my first posting, I didn't even know that we intercepted phone calls until Security Division asked me if I was the one who lost the transcripts. But if Lieutenant Fourquet was a master interrogator, he hid it from his subject well. After making me spell my name twice and double-checking the address of the mission, he flipped to a card with a number 2 on the back and proceeded with his investigation. There is some evidence of a Russian connection, he said, finally getting to something interesting. Was Monsieur Utherwaite involved with any Russian dossiers? "'No,' I said. "'Is there any evidence of Russian involvement, "'other than that the girl in the printout "'from the prostitute website you found on Julian's printer "'was using Natasha as her work name?' "'Well,' he coughed, "'not really, but Madame Percival encouraged me "'not to take anything off the table too early.' "'Of course,' I said, "'resisting the urge to ask him "'when Kennedy Percival had taken over the investigation. "'Was he working on any controversial dossiers "'that could have brought him into harm's way?' "'All his dossiers were somewhat controversial,' "'I said,' That's why a trade mission is needed to resolve them. Each has some kind of opposition in Europe, but it seems unlikely that any of them are worth murdering someone, especially a junior officer. He nodded in agreement. So that brings us back to the Russian prostitutes. No, not necessarily, I replied. I don't believe he used prostitutes. The apartment had the pornographic magazines and also the printout with the Russian prostitutes. A thought suddenly struck me. Wouldn't a young man like Julian be more likely to use the Internet for pornography instead of magazines? In fact, wasn't that the main use of the internet? I explained this idea to Lieutenant Fourquette. "'Are you deeply knowledgeable about internet pornography, monsieur?' asked the lieutenant, raising his eyebrow. "'I'm told you speak Russian.' I could see where this was heading. "'No,' I replied. "'If we had his computer or phone, we could check. "'But I still don't believe Julian used pornography or prostitutes.' "'Do you have proof?' he asked. "'Proof of a negative? Of course not,' I replied.' He nodded like it was checkmate. I decided to change tacks. Are you investigating the escort agencies for Russian prostitutes? The lieutenant gave a classic version of the c'est impossible shrug and eye roll so beloved of Belgian bureaucrats. With thousands of diplomats and officials to serve in 24 official languages, the prostitution business in Brussels was so large that it would take years and an enormous team of multilingual police officers to get to the bottom of the question. I plowed on. What have your forensic people discovered from the fingerprints, hairs, and so on? Well, to tell you the truth, he replied, not very much. The site was heavily contaminated by your colleagues when we got there, and there were obviously many guests in the previous days. There were a number of bottles and glasses in the kitchen. I began to get annoyed. Was this the best the Brussels police could do? i had somehow hoped that a dedicated and expert television police detective would take the case. Instead, we had a rookie who wasn't trying very hard. The rest of the interrogation was formulaic. I tried to excite some interest in him, but he just moved methodically through his cue cards. Finally, he stood up. Instinct told me he was going to swirl things around for a few weeks and then declare that Julian had been robbed and murdered by a shadowy and uncatchable Russian crime ring. It was maddening, and I could feel my blood rising. Julian's murderers looked pretty safe, at least if Lieutenant Forquette was running the case. That is all my questions, he said. Could you take me to Cornelio Fret? I need to interrogate him as well. "'Cornelio,' I snapped in annoyance. "'How did you know Cornelio Fret was really a man? "'Are you cleared to know that?' "'Cleared,' he stuttered. "'Really a man?' "'It's highly sensitive,' I said. "'He's working on cracking a Moroccan white slave ring from Montreal. "'I'll have to tell him to do better.' "'I pointed the lieutenant to Cornelio's office "'and slammed my door in disgust. "'I returned to my desk and, "'despite the fear that Can do Canada had a preordained ending, "'began reviewing the briefing notes prepared by Dunscap back in Ottawa.' You can't stop doing your job just because you think it might be pointless. Nothing would ever get done at the department if people started thinking that way. Dunscap's briefing notes were classics of their kind, neither brief nor of any note, as the old saying goes. They were written in that slightly breathless tone that suits a briefing note on the latest international crisis, rather than one on a dispute over asbestos that's been going on for over 30 years. They hardly admitted that the European position might have some legitimate elements, and the responsive messages meant to rebut potential hostile responses did not address some of the Europeans most powerful arguments. I couldn't fault Dunscap too much. He had to write these in the knowledge that they would probably be leaked. You didn't want your briefing note quoted in the papers describing the product of asbestos Quebec as a health hazard or admitting that European consumers might have a point when they objected to feeding genetically modified food to their children. I dutifully scribbled my comments on the briefing notes. I took pains to write legibly I remember the time when Dunscap switched fountain pen inks to a light blue just like the lines on fullscap, and his comments stopped showing up in faxes. He was used to being ignored, and didn't realize his writing wasn't showing up for weeks. One thing that did arouse my bureaucratic instincts was the Tar Sands briefing note. It was longer, and in a slightly different font. It was also better written, with a logic and knowledge of petrochemical engineering that suggested Dunscap had not even been in the same building when it had been written. In spite of myself, I found myself drawn into the technicalities. It appeared that we actually had a strong set of facts in our favor. Of course, ripping thousands of tons of oily goo out of northern Alberta didn't make for pretty photographs. But it looked like we compared well with the Saudis and Russians in terms of air pollution and carbon emissions. The briefing note even quoted impressive-sounding scientific studies instead of using vague phrases like experts believe, as medieval German poetry experts like Dunscap tend to use. I wrote down a few terms to look up in Kennedy's book of petrochemical engineering. I spent lunch reading the news coverage from back home and cringed at how many Canadian papers had picked up the leak. The reader comments on the bottom of each story seemed even more insane than usual. Our minister was manfully parroting his line that the government was passionately committed to helping every Canadian industry and that the oil business would get its fair share of attention, but no more. Various environmentalists claimed to be profoundly shocked that the Canadian government was helping the oil industry. The Premier of Alberta merely remarked that it was good to hear that the Foreign Service was finally doing something useful. I pondered all this as I took the elevator down to my meeting with Sherlock. My eagerness to help with Julian's investigation was evaporating as the prospect of spending time in the same room with Sherlock drew closer. Conversations with Sherlock are inevitably strewn with heroically dull anecdotes about the wars in former Yugoslavia. He did four tours there with our peacekeepers, Sometimes officials are successful because of their enormous capacity for boredom. They can sit forever, watching you until you make a mistake. Count von Bernsdorf, the Kaiser's ambassador in Washington, once said that the secret to his success was his willingness to be bored. An hour with Sherlock would have been right up his alley. I made sure I was watered, fed, coffeeed, and ready to endure lengthy Balkan digressions. Then I knocked on his door. He offered me some Canadian office coffee in a styrofoam cup which I gladly accepted. It was his signal that I was still on the friendly interrogation list. Sherlock was occupying the office of the former tourism promotion officer, a slightly flakier version of a trade commissioner. Instead of helping Canadian companies sell crates of things to foreigners, TPOs engage in tourism marketing. This seems to involve a lot of glossy travel brochures and getting drunk with tour company representatives. A thick layer of dust covered everything and the calendar's days were crossed off until that tragic moment a few years before, when the tourism promotion in Europe budget was stood up against a beige modular wall in Ottawa and shot. Outdated brochures were strewn by the window, layered by age like an archaeological dig. There was a poster from the Calgary Olympics framed on the side wall. I selected an Ontario wine country brochure as a coaster and turned to face my interrogator. Sherlock moved a lamp out of the way on his desk you're supposed to shine the lamp in my eyes, I pointed out. It doesn't work. Admin is looking for a bulb that fits. A flurry of dust disturbing ensued as Sherlock wrestled with the Venetian blinds, possibly tangled in retaliatory sabotage after their previous owner was unexpectedly repatriated. We sat in alternating stripes of sun and darkness, with specks of dust floating like sparkles through the thin beams of light that flashed across the room. I needed something to break the ice. Sherlock seemed a bit testy. So I eschewed the usual jokes about phone cable truncheons and electric nipple clips. How are you liking the famous Belgian beer over here? I asked. Terrible, he exclaimed in disgust. Give me a moosehead any time. I ordered some Belgian beer last night, and it turned out to be cherry-flavored. I decided to change tacks. This was no time to teach Sherlock about Brussels and its fruit-flavored beers. I waited for him to finish complaining that the sports channel in his hotel played European handball instead of the Leafs-Habs game. I wasn't very impressed with the Belgian investigator, I said, hoping Sherlock would stop pining so loudly for Ottawa. Sherlock, for some reason, interpreted this as an endorsement of his own competence and smiled. Yes, Cornelia said he kept walking around the office pretending to look out the window and then trying to see down her blouse. We sipped our coffee. It was terrible. Did Lucille make this for you, I asked? He nodded. By the way, were you at the stagiaire party the night before Julian was murdered? His offhand, by the way, immediately put me on the alert. I scoffed derisively. Do I look like the kind of person who gets invited to parties held by people rich and well-connected enough to be summer interns at the commission? That's a young man's game. And young woman's, I suppose I should say. Interns, replied Sherlock. I thought it was a bigger deal. It is a big deal, I replied. In Brussels, the annual stagiaire program is a very, very big deal. University students from all the member states go to extreme lengths to be selected. It's a leg up on getting a cushy Eurocrat job full-time. I recounted the stories of shirtless Swedish internets dancing in cages, pilsner flowing like water at the German stagiaire parties, and the pools of vomit at events held by the Irish contingent. I decided not to volunteer the stories I'd read in the Belgian papers about the excesses at the most recent party held by the Spanish stagiaires, nor the fact that the mission's intern had showed me some internet photos of a minor Spanish princess dancing that had Cornelia in the background, with her eyes apparently pointing in different directions. I was puzzled about how Sherlock had found out about the party and asked him. Cornelia said she was at that stagiaire party the night of the murder. She said it was quite a party, and there were several people from the mission there. Quite a few drinks were had, apparently, replied Sherlock. I often have doubts about Cornelia, and another one passed through my mind at that moment. Generally, one does not volunteer information about oneself to interrogators, especially if it involves you and your colleagues getting plastered in foreign countries. I tried to picture Sherlock using the old deliberate silence, technique, until Cornelia cracked and filled the dead air with whatever she was nervous about. It probably took about 10 seconds. Sometimes I wonder how we won the Cold War. Would there have been Russian prostitutes at the stagiaire party? asked Sherlock. Probably not, I replied, resisting the urge to point out that a Brussels stagiaire party is different in important ways from, say, a night out with his old regiment. Stagiaire parties have so many enthusiastic amateurs that professionals are unnecessary. Sherlock was in an expansive mood and told me what they knew so far. The Spanish interns invited the mission's intern, you know, the Icelandic one. I waited patiently as Sherlock gave me a few dirty old man winks and joked about not kicking her out of bed for eating crackers. Finally, he remembered what he was talking about and continued with his story. He told me the mission intern invited Julian and Cornelia. The intern and Cornelia had a few drinks at La Morsubit. Finally, Sherlock said something interesting, adding, But Julian wasn't there! since he was having dinner at the home of some French guy named Duvel. What? I interjected. Léonard Duvel, the French deputy permanent representative? Yeah, that's him. The French deputy perm rep is like a minor god in Brussels. He's always one of the most influential members of the Committee of Permanent Representatives, or co-repair, to Brussels insiders. And many of the most important EU files cross his desk. When you see the Council of Ministers debating an issue on television, the French deputy perm rep and his co-repair colleagues have often already decided its substance. Our ambassador had never been invited to Duval's house, so I was surprised to hear that a third secretary like Julian would be there. This hadn't occurred to Sherlock. He wasn't here to investigate why our ambassador didn't get invited to the homes of influential European officials. Anyway, he said, after dinner, Julian picked up Cornelia and your intern in his BMW. Sherlock looked up at me with raised eyebrows. I couldn't tell if he thought this was evidence that foreign service officers were overpaid or that Julian had gone native and should have owned an American car. It was more than a decade old, I pointed out. Sherlock carried on. The intern at Julian had to move the duty officer's briefcase to the trunk when she got in. It gets a bit fuzzy after that. Sherlock raised his eyebrows again. Cornelia doesn't remember seeing Julian leaving the party or who he left with. I could see where this was heading. Any signs of other people at his flat? Sherlock nodded. Bed sheets. a woman. Sherlock looked slightly disappointed, like he'd been hoping for a more stereotypical foreign service officer incident involving a rent boy. Is there any evidence in the bed? Perhaps some bodily fluids, as they say? I asked, trying to be as delicate as I could. Sherlock snorted at my ignorance. Well, there were some red hairs in the bed, but we can't just go out and test every redhead in Brussels. Although, now that you mention it, there is the printout with this photo of Natasha. He held up a colour copy of the page from Julian's printer. That had been in black and white, but I noticed that Sherlock seemed to have gone back to the Brussels escort website and printed an enlarged color version of Natasha. In color, she had red hair. I held my tongue as Sherlock showed me the other photos he'd printed out from the website's other pages. He flipped through them, asking me if I thought names like Yulia, Irina, Natalia, and Maria sounded Russian. When we were finished debating the possible ethnicity of Maria, I tried to change the subject. Were the hairs in the bed natural red or dyed, I asked. They were pubic hairs, McGregor. Oh, right, I said in embarrassment. Well, that, that rules out most of the women in Brussels, I suppose. I decided to change the subject. Did they find fingerprints? Everywhere. Literally dozens of them. But not on the statue they killed him with. It was wiped. Any sign they tried to drug him? That would be standard operating procedure in Moscow. The typical story involves a cipher clerk taking out a pretty girl and bringing her back to his apartment, where she gives him a knockout drug. Then she steals everything, or her friends take embarrassing photos. Then comes the blackmail, assuming your typical cipher clerk survives the dodgy Russian knockout drug. This isn't Moscow, McGregor. The Belgians say no drugs, just duty-free liquor, said Sherlock. He told me that none of the doors or windows were forced, and that the apartment had a steel door with a good lock. Julian must have let her in. The strange thing is the statue is a murder weapon. It's nice and club-shaped, if you hold the bear by the leg, but not really the sign of a professional assassin, if you know what I mean. Sherlock described how Julian was struck once on the head with a statue and then hit his head on the coffee table on the way down. He was naked, and his clothes were scattered all over the apartment. After he was down, continued Sherlock, she stole the duty officer's briefcase plus his wallet, diplomatic passport, BlackBerry, money clip, and computer. I noticed Sherlock was saying she, like the Russian prostitute thesis was a sure thing. So Russian prostitutes are one possibility, or prostitutes pretending to be Russian for some reason, I said. But it could also have been some eco-fanatics upset about one of our trade files. For example, asbestos, Frankenstein canola, clear-cutting oil, or, well, the list goes on. Or maybe even someone with a commercial interest. You found lots of business cards, too, like the one for Sleeth from West Can Energy. Those trade deals may seem boring, but millions of dollars of business can be at stake for the winners and losers. I went on to tell him my question to Lieutenant Forquette about why a young man would use dirty magazines instead of the internet for pornography. Or, for that matter... Julian would need to print out a page from the website. But Sherlock appeared not to hear me. He was lost in thought. My big question is, why would a prostitute steal the duty officer's briefcase? I can understand the computer and the phone. He rubbed his chin like a television detective. Hard to say. Maybe she just grabbed it because it looked important. Maybe she thought there might be some documents in it she could sell to somebody. But the duty officer's briefcase isn't supposed to have confidential documents in it, I replied. It only would have valuable documents if someone at the mission made a security lapse. A thief couldn't rely on that. They would have been better off to blackmail someone to turn over real documents. Maybe that was part of her plan too, but Julian did something and she killed him. What I don't understand is why they didn't steal the Inuit statue set, said Sherlock. Steal Canadian art, I asked. I looked at the government art bank pieces on the office wall. Look, McGregor, said Sherlock, there are two scenarios. One is that someone wanted something from the mission, and they targeted Julian with a honey trap. Maybe they wanted to blackmail him, but he got feisty, and they decided to kill him. But come on, this is Brussels, not East Berlin. It's more likely Julian was lonely, and called a prostitute, who saw an opportunity and grabbed it. This case won't be hard to wrap up. I'll be back in Ottawa within a week. I shook my head. I still have trouble with the Russian prostitute thesis. Julian was young and popular. There are plenty of single women in Brussels, Sherlock snorted. Everyone is always surprised. That's a wrap for episode 10 of The Tarzan's Diplomat. Check iTunes next week for episode 11, where McGregor gets a call from an old friend and an invitation to a very intriguing party. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend or leave a review on amazon.ca.